Today's episode of the podcast contains an honest and transparent look at our guests' experience within the group Nexium, as well as conversation around other cult-like organizations. We feel this episode is important and best to share in its raw and unedited format. It contains strong language and detail about activities within the cult, and so listener discretion is advised. We have to blow this shit up, we have to expose it, we have to free the slaves, take everything down, and it, uh, that happened very, very quickly. And I, I mean, my whole body gets into like fight or flight just talking about it. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with that subject. Now, we're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. My guests today are Sarah and Nippy, podcast hosts from A Little Bit Culty. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks, Joey. Thanks Thanks, for having us. I'm excited we got to connect. Thank you guys so much for saying yes and being a part of the show. It was a no-brainer. Dismantle. Let's dismantle some shit. Let's take some shit apart, right? Uh, Before we dive into it, give our listeners a little bit about who you are and some of the work that you do if they have no idea who you are. I'm going to do this one? You go first. Okay. I've honed this elevator pitch because it's a bit complicated, but the long and short of it is we're both actors and we spent way too long in a group that we we thought was really good and when we figured out that it was actually not only not good but very bad we decided to go to the authorities and eventually the media and worked with the fbi to take the leadership down and the leader is sitting in prison for 120 years pontificating (laughs) Pontificating. basic thursday (laughs) so that's our lives we're parents uh i wrote a book about my experience now we're doing a podcast about cult education and awareness and uh we've sort of become uh, unofficial cult experts, not real experts. Our podcast is more about abuses of power. Yes. And cult is our lane right now. And that could go anywhere. Well, it much. already has. Our last episode um, uh, ended up being about consent. So we were going we to wrap our first season. And then we had a conversation with these people that are leading some legislation uh, in New York right now about defining consent, which does, does not have a legal definition. And so to me, that seemed like a, a, a perfect way to button our first season because uh, all these things that people got involved with, particularly in our case, no one consented to. We weren't consenting to be aligned with someone who was doing the behaviors that he got exposed to doing and he was hiding them. So that was ultimately abuse of his power and he abused his power and how he got people to consent to things. So um, being able to pivot in that direction while not really going out of our lane has been um, the thing that I've been interested in doing because I'm not really interested in commenting on things I don't have an acumen. And right now our story is, and then if that can segue into something that ends up um, imbuing into maybe a legal system and consent, so something that happened to us won't happen to others, I think that's turning a negative into a positive. So, Which is a great segue. Uh, you know, I'm familiar with A Little Bit Culty. It's a phenomenal podcast. We highly recommend it on the show. Thank you. Can you give our listeners a little bit of your story? I understand that they can go back and listen to some of the horrific details of the last couple of years for you guys. But give us just a brief history about how you found yourself within Nexium. Well, um, oh, 
chronology. But, well, I'm first because I, I, I got in first. <laughs> Nippy got in first. We can pick up sure, where you, you, you went. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, tell so, your story. Um, we, we got in in very different ways. Different ways. And everyone got in in a different way. So everyone's story is case by case and everyone's exit is case by case. Um, I had a friend of mine, a girl I dated in high school who lived in the Albany area. And she took the training. I think it was a gift from her parents. And I ran into her in New York City at a party, and she kind of told me about it. I still had feelings for her at the time, so I didn't really... It was kind of a mixed bag of things going on. I wasn't really interested in what she was telling me about it. Um, but she knew me, and she knew a lot about, like, you know, when I was young, I was always reading books about, like, Churchill, Kennedy. Um, I played quarterback in college, so that was about leadership. Um, I had books on how to be the best quarterback. I was very interested in improving myself and whatever I was committed to. And she kind of knew that. And she's like, this is all the stuff that you talked about when we dated. And I started to be an actual segue. And it was about a year and a half of her hounding me. Uh, I think she said something that her dad had taken a five day and liked it. And I respected her dad. Her dad's a brain surgeon in, in the area. And he went to Yale. He played sports at Yale. So I kind of figured... There's someone with a similar profile as me. And if he liked it, how bad could it be? And I went up, took it and wasn't overwhelmed, but really saw a lot of good things about goal setting, personal responsibility and evolving, you know, what you might perceive as personal limitations in your psychology. And I thought that was interesting. So that was around 2001. Um, I stayed involved for about a year and a half. Um, the only place you could take it at the time was Albany, New York, and I was living in New York City, so I had to go up on weekends to take training. So I'd take a class on a Friday night, a Saturday, then I'd leave Saturday night and go back to the city. Um, I did that till about the fall of 2003, December 2003, and then I just kind of took inventory on the company and felt like, for lack of a better word, like the people here that were driving it just weren't, I wasn't aligned with them. I didn't really see them as leaders in their own lives. And I felt like the bowing, the vanguard and the sashes were never going to catch on in New York City. And there's a group of people that are trying to get it going in New York City. And so I was deuces. I was out. And I wasn't like, I wasn't like, fuck you, I'm out. I was like, this just doesn't feel like my group. It's not my tribe. Um, and I wasn't going to be the one to try and lead this thing of vanguard sashes. So I left, quote, left the organization. I didn't really have to leave. I just was like, I'm done. I'm not. I'm not taking classes where I got what I got out of it. Um, but it wasn't under any sort of negative situation, you know, and I thought, Hey, if you guys have new trainings, maybe I'll take one once a year or something like that. Use it like, um, a tool to help you in your life, not make the tools my life. If that makes sense. Um, cut to, I think it was the first week of January of 2006. I decided to go take a training. I was living in LA at the time and I was back East for Christmas took a training in 2006 and the organization was totally different. It expanded to New York city a little bit more, Mexico, Monterey. It was having trainings in Los Angeles, Vancouver, had a lot more like on the ball people. Cool was, people and, like yeah. us. <laughs> and it was kind of a thing where I was eating my words. I was wrong. And I felt like, huh, this thing caught on. We're interesting, you know, and it was becoming international. So it seemed like, it was a company that was floundering when I first, you know, started it. Um, and, and it had a Forbes article that came out in 2003, which kind of put me off. Um, it was about Keith and his weirdness. And I was like, yeah, I don't think you need to be allowed. But they ended up transcending that and overcoming those things. And 
actually getting more people that I felt like were aligned with me. You had directors, actors, you had entrepreneurs in there. And I thought, huh, interesting. So I go back to LA. I didn't really, you know, wasn't enough for me to like stay involved. And then um, one of the people I met in that training in 2006 was a, a film director named Mark Vicente, who, if you know our story, <clears throat> he directed, <clears throat> excuse me, he directed What the Bleep Do We Know? And he came out in about August of 2006 or July of 2006 to LA and said, listen, I got a project um, and we want you to be in it and you're going to have to move back to Albany. And so they paid for me to relocate from Los Angeles to New York, uh, upstate New York. They shipped my car, everything, and they housed me for a little under a year, and they paid for everything while we were in pre-production. And ultimately, the film never got made, so I ended up staying involved with the organization. I was pissed. And around 2008, 2009, I decided to um, become a part of the group that was growing the organization in New York City. So they kind of got me in a certain way through work that ended up not really happening. And so uh, that's probably around the time you got in. That was a long story. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> well, it was quick. I covered, you know. 16 years. Yeah, you're up. My, my version's a little bit different. Um, I got in through Mark directly, Mark Vicente, through a th the film festival where um, I was attending as a guest and I had seen with the bleep and long story short, I connected with him and wanted to work with him. And he was like, yeah, we're, I'm part of this group. And there's this man who's the smartest man in the world. And I mean, that should have been a major red flag right there. But I was more drawn into the community concept of people, humanitarians trying to shift consciousness specifically with him as a filmmaker through media, which is what I was trying to do and not getting anywhere as an actor. And basically I was given my dreams on a silver platter and I jumped in without researching and became a coach very quickly. Uh, a couple of years later, became a center owner, brought the curriculum to Vancouver, was very gung-ho about everything I was learning and um, was also very separate from the leadership in the inner circle back in Albany. So it's kind of like I got the good, all the good out of it for a long time without the bad um, until of course we saw the bad. Now, obviously hindsight is 2020. Looking back at your past self, what would you both say was your main vulnerability that made the group look appealing? Was it just about, you know, the film industry or were there other things that you could now look back and say, actually, I wanted X? Yeah, a lot of things. I've had to, you know, most of the therapy I've done since leaving has been like trying to analyze that so I could understand it. A, so I don't do it again, because a lot of people when they leave groups like this become cult hoppers if they don't figure out what's what's the what those vulnerabilities are. So yeah, there's certain logistical things like uh, you know, support and community and being a part of something that was more meaningful than just being like an actress living in a basement suite, but also a vulnerability for me was that, you know, especially as an actor, you can do all the things and then not progress. And I liked the stripe path that was basically like a martial arts system of personal growth with sashes, which I thought were cheesy, but also was like, okay, if I do X, Y, and Z, I can go to the next level. And you don't get that in acting ever. Um, it's very haphazard and, and other people's control. And I felt like my self-esteem was growing in this path, but also within that path. And I think this is the manipulative part about it is that they gave me the thing that I was wanting ultimately, which at the time was to feel special and to feel, um, you know, in, in other words, I didn't have the, the fame that I wanted as an actor in my real life, but I was getting it slowly and, and systematically through this community. Um, and I rose the ranks very quickly and that felt good. So 
that I'd say is my main vulnerability is, is giving me, you know, dangling that the gold, the proverbial gold stars that I was looking for in my life. How about you, Nip? Yeah. For me, um, I think, uh, we, we did a podcast with a guy named Matthew Rimsky and Conspirituality already, Podcast. Conspirituality, um, and he was on ours and he articulated it, uh, in a sense of, I didn't really feel like quote unquote vulnerable or like, you know, like in the traditional sense, like, you know, I was looking for something. I just, you know, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, an athlete goes to the gym to improve. I felt like this was kind of a gym for the mind in that sort of sense. But ultimately, you know, one of the reasons I I ended up liking it and one of the, one of the things that it ended up exploiting, if you want to say it's a vulnerability is a sense of purpose. You know, I had always kind of felt like, what hierarchy or what domain or what sphere do I want to enter and do well in? Right. And then what, what's the process? Like how you just apply yourself, you know, if, you know, if it's a sport, you find out what it is and you practice it and you do it all the time. You have, you have certain things that you do and certain processes that you follow. Um, I didn't look at law as anything particularly as inspiring. And I didn't really feel like there was a particular domain. And if you look and Rimsky was articulating, it's like, what was really going on at the time, and particularly with our generation, is you have um, basically things going on economically, and even now where people are inventing careers for themselves online. And it's particularly acute with our generation because there doesn't seem to be that place for people to thrive and have a sense of purpose. Sure, you can go into other sense of things and get that feeling of purpose, like say maybe law or maybe something or other other avenues, but I didn't really have that. And ultimately I kicked the tires on this at first and was like, mm, this doesn't feel like it's it. And then when it came back, I'd say my vulnerability was exploited. My sense of purpose of wanting was more the second go around for me because it felt like, okay, here I am. There's a lot of good people around. We all want the same things. This seems to be a good place to do it. In spite of all the shortcomings I see, this thing seems to be doing well. Uh, and like any company, it's going to have things that you don't agree with, but this thing seems to have principles that I align with, and I have a feeling, a sense of purpose doing this. So I'd say if that was my, if there was the vulnerability that I felt like was abused or, or you know, where, where I felt like I was conned, it was in the feeling of sense of purpose and being aligned with something that it felt noble. Which is interesting because most people would say, well, they, uh, you know, for, for the intense of this conversation cults prey on the weak they prey on uh, naive minded people you two are obviously very intelligent but what are the draws of that type of an organization or just cults in general that you know is it is it just that sense of purpose is it just a sense of you know improving yourself or are there many ways that people find themselves inside these organizations There's, many ways it's case by case and for me particularly it was a sense of purpose and it was also um i think when i read about it in Yanya Lalich's book called Take Back Your Life she has eight specific things in it and one of them that really resonated with me was moral injury you know they take people who want to do good and they use them to accelerate their agenda, whatever that may be, until, they're, until they wise up to it. So I don't make it an in intelligence thing because there's a lot of intelligent people running around the world doing And many things, are also still loyal to Doing Keith. things based on a false premise, right? And so we just basically had a false premise. If you go down to the assumptive base of what we were doing, we thought Keith was 
a good person who had organized some old hat ideas into something that felt like we were going to address certain things in the world. And that was just the lie. And that was the con. So naive. Yes. Um, Idealistic. Fair <laughs> enough. Like, you know, I mean, all those things, it doesn't really matter to me how it's quantified. We got conned and we didn't see the con until we had given up a lot of time of our lives. And that to me is the biggest, biggest crime here. So can I add to that? Yeah, sure. About the weak willed thing, because that comes up a lot. And that's definitely, I think it's, I mean, there, there's a huge range of people that join cults and some of them maybe are weak <laughs> and some of them are strong. And ultimately they can't run a cult or any organization with a, without, with a bunch of idiots. They, you need people who can get you done. And I was definitely one of those people, unfortunately, um, putting all my energy and life force into, like, like Nippy just said, a false premise. But I've learned that cults want all types of people. And they also want rich people because they need money. Um, but they also need poor people who are, don't have slaves, you know, to be basically slaves, you know, and to work for free and to run the organization and to like clean the toilets and feel, you know, purposeful, while and feel purposeful while doing it. So one of the risks, Joey, I think, and people going, a lot of people like to think they're immune to this kind of stuff, right? That's, that's ultimately when people say stuff like that, that's all they're advertising to me. You are self-preserving your self-image and the fact that you don't think you're immune, you don't think you're vulnerable or susceptible to anything like this and that you're immune to this. And normally people that think that are the very people that are susceptible to it because they don't know what it looks like. And the quickest way to do a disservice to the wisdom and knowledge of the story is to mis dismiss it as that. Because if you do, you don't really take the time to understand how one man systematically came up with something that conned many CEOs of companies that conned the Dalai Lama, that conned a lot of smart, intelligent people, right? Bernie Madoff did it. Like, and if you dismiss people as stupid and naive for following with that, and you don't do the service of understanding how and why they did it, you don't get the wisdom and lessons. So one of the reasons we did this podcast in the first place is because I felt like we could translate our story into content and wisdom so that someone 18 to 34, that's probably our demographic, right? Let's be honest. Um, can hear this and go, holy shit, someone tried to sell me on something that sounds a lot like that. Thank God I heard this clip or this, I saw this meme or whatever it is, however it happens today. I'm glad I heard Sarah articulate it that way, or I'm glad I heard Nippy articulate it that way so I don't have to make that mistake. And so that this is wisdom and this is something that people can go to and go, huh, got it. I don't have to make that mistake and give up 10 to 12 years of your life. Now, was there any sense from either of you that while in the middle of it, maybe in, in the best of times within Nexium, was there any sense that this was all bullshit? Like, obviously you had said, Nippy, that, you know, you're not going to always agree with everything. There's not going to be this flawless image of everything. But that aside, did anything trip in your mind? Like, yes. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like there was a number of times, especially towards, I didn't really realize till not I to left. Extent, though. Yeah. But there, I didn't really realize till, till, till when we left that there were a lot of things that we were unhappy with that I was putting aside, putting aside because I was so invested. And, you know, also I'm stubborn. I don't give up, you know, I don't give right. up on stuff. And they, there's this indoctrination that if you give up, if you leave, then you're weak. That we made a commitment. Commitment is our power. It's one of the main mantras. So that's part of the indoctrination to keep people loyal. They didn't want people to leave. So if you, if there was any ever doubt, you put it aside, put it aside, put it aside, because you're like, I committed. I, I said I was going to show up to Vanguard Week every 
every year for the rest of my life. I did 12 in a row. I'm not stopping now, right? So a lot of the, but in terms of what's bullshit, I think the biggest thing that was bullshit for me was towards the end, Keith kept creating these trainings that were so expensive and we had to take them. And for and example, they were bad. and they weren't great. Yeah, they were like the, the trainings at the beginning, truthfully were good, which is why I like them and why I got so many people to do them. I loved the five day, the five day in and of itself, I thought was transformative. And if you were open and you had good trainers, would address so many aspects of your life. But later he was doing these things like this program called The Ethicist, for example, which was 10 days long. It was 10 grand, 10 grand. Or like the Jeunesse tracks, which were $15,000 for eight day trainings. And it, it were so expensive. And I, in, inside I was like, this is too much money. Like this is we too much. Well, I, a, lot, a lot of people are paying for it. I was as, as a salesperson, um, filling the trainings and get it basically doing an exchange. Like I was helping to, to fill the training and then I could attend. But most of the people were paying money or if they weren't paying the money, they were working the trainings. In other words, they were running them and cleaning toilets and putting out food and stuff like that. But I was supposed to be a salesperson selling this stuff to people. And I was like, this is too much money. I don't feel right asking for somebody for five grand or 10 grand or 15 grand for something that I'm like, it's okay. It's, is it really that worth it? So that was a big bullshit red flag for me. And also like, I think the other bullshit overall, thing. Overall, how things were run were shit. Yeah, overall, all the time. everybody was we were so always disorganized. Out fires. Like, it never felt like we had an uh, infrastructure where if we needed something as the people that were kind of going out and growing it, we never felt like we could go back to the infrastructure and get help with it. We always felt like every time we went back to admin or something like that, we had another fight in our hands. So we were fighting to build it, and then we were fighting it fighting amongst ourselves at home because nobody was competent enough to do anything. Yeah, the incompetence so was, like, was ridiculous. Fuck this man, uh, you know, that it's was a success like program. Twenty twelve, twenty thirteen on, I, you know, I was, you know, we we were always kind of like, what else can we do? So it was, if it, I always said, if it was if it was an army, morale was low. It took Mark Vicente and I four years to get them to change the website, which was so weird and culty looking, and we were like, people think we're a cult. Like, well, let's get, let's get some. Let's get a new, let's get some, no pun intended, some new branding here because this is awful. People are going to go on our website and say, no, because just based on it. And we brought that to Keith and Keith said that we didn't even need a website. I'm like, inside, I'm going, that's bullshit. You can't have a company without a website now. Like he was stuck in the seventies. But the thing is, is you couldn't ever express that. Like if I were to say Keith's an idiot, like doesn't Keith know that we need a website? I would have been a major trouble. So you learn to suppress those thoughts and keep it inside and just go along with the system yeah so now how did you guys eventually leave and get out of nexium affiliation okay so yeah i mean the short version of it is that we were disillusioned we were you know we had a baby in 2014 that became the focus just as i was getting into motherhood they gave me my green sash which is like was what i was trying to get to for so many years and they finally gave it to me i think just to keep me motivated to keep me hooked in and a number of things weren't, weren't cool, like I just mentioned, and they'd stopped paying us and giving us commissions in the way that the, the structure was designed to do. So they kept changing it, like changing the bar, changing the um, protocols. Like we had worked really hard to get to a certain level of helping people. And then they like said, you had to go, everyone had to go back to the beginning. And that was just so annoying. <laughs> they do that in Scientology too, by the way. Um, and then I was invited, I don't want to get too into this, but I was based, the short version, I was invited to a secret sorority within um, 
a, a circle of women, I was told. And, oh man, it's this part is very complicated to explain. One of the reasons why I wrote the book and why I gr- agreed to do the vow so that could, the story would be out there and I wouldn't have to talk about it too much. But the short version of it is that I thought I was getting uh, going to be a part of an initiation ceremony and getting a tattoo and ended up being a brand in this ceremony that was barbaric and um, without anesthetic and was very incredibly painful. That in and of itself didn't wake me up, but it was realizing, uh, you know, weeks later that the symbol that I'd, they'd put on my body was not a symbol for the four elements as I'd been told, but was actually Keith's initials. And around that same time, Mark Vicente, who had brought me in, who was also my business partner, had also woken up and starting to put everything together. Keith, Keith was really brilliant at keeping everybody siloed and keeping everybody separate, which I think is what a lot of cult leaders do. Not everybody has all the information. So for the first time, Mark and I shared information, and he had found out that there was a group of women who were part of the secret group, and they'd been tasked with having sex with Keith. And I didn't have that experience, but I had been branded. So we basically swapped stories, and we were able to kind of piece together what was actually a pretty accurate description of what we found out ultimately, which is that Keith created a blackmail MLM scheme using nude photos and branding women with his initials to secure these women's loyalty to the group, like, you know, next level control shit, right? And I I was furious. I'd spent 12 years in this organization vouching for this guy, only to find out that he was a narcissistic, sociopathic, sex-addicted, megalomaniac douchebag, you know, like the opposite of what I thought he was. And so uh, we, we worked very, very quickly to... Uh, coordinate with the people who were awake and to get out. And we, there was a couple of weeks where we were living a double life where they didn't know that we were out and we were out and we were trying to inform people. But as soon as you leave in any negative way, you become a um, like a heretic, right? Is that, is, that the, is that the word? In, yeah, like you're, 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 what's the word? There's, you're an enemy. Yeah, I mean, you're an instant enemy. So we had to leave and get people out. And I realized that, that Keith had many slaves um, under him and these women that I had brought in to the community were now part of this other thing and had given nude photos and they were um, compromised in many ways. So I w- we were just like, we have to blow this shit up. We have to expose it. We have to free the slaves, take the th- take everything down. And it, uh, that happened very, very quickly. And I, I mean, my whole body gets into like fight or flight just talking about it because it was the most intense period of my life. It felt like we were at war and um, we, we, we got out dismantled that's why I like the name of your podcast. <laughs> Dismantled it very, very quickly and um, worked, yeah, like I said at the beginning, worked with the FBI ultimately to um, bring Keith to justice and, and get, him in, get him behind bars where he deserves to be. So that's a short version of it. Which we appreciate you sharing with as much transparency as you have and, and you know, you, both of you, your bravery to, to not only take on this institution, but to just share your story is almost unheard of. People just don't do that naturally. So they don't. It's surprising. Yeah. A lot of people don't do that. Mostly because they're embarrassed. Like, and yeah. obviously we were embarrassed, we were embarrassed too. Yeah, man. I mean, shit. Sure, we, we're that still like fun. every now and then we're like, oh my God, can you? Do you do you remember we pitched like the people we tried to pitch? Oh my god! It's so embarrassing, and we were like, you know, so righteous about it. We thought we had the best thing in the world, and they're like, yeah, it looks a little culty. I'm like, well, you don't know, you don't understand, you don't get it. it." And then, (laughs) and we yeah, we thought it was their limitations. Now, Nippy, I love how you 
call, instead of survivors, you call them winners. People who have come out of the cult, the organization. Uh, you know, I, I, I personally like that perspective. Your experience was a bit, I don't want to call it dramatic in a naive sense, but it was, it was a bit shocking how you guys exited. Are there similar beats for people when they do wake up? Is it that drastic all the time? Or is there more, like you said, it's not a one size fits all. Right. So here's what, here's my, I say this and I don't say this really with like self-preservation in mind. It's just kind of my diagnosis and of the situation. I think I was indoctrinated to a point, if that makes sense. Um, Simply because I don't think I was targeted in the same way. And I don't think I was susceptible in the same way. Right. Like this never gotten in the way of my family. Other people didn't end up not talking to their family. Like to me, this was a job and I, and I treated it as such, you know, in most jobs, your jobs don't really get in the way dogmatically over your family and other things that you want. And I still used it as something that I felt like was going to help me in my life. Um, I didn't seek Keith's um, approval. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't like that. In fact, I didn't particularly like being around him, right? I just, I thought he was off, but it was more player coach, if that makes sense. Like I'm growing a business. So, you know, when, when we did stay in Albany, I purposely got a place outside 20, 30 minutes away from where everyone else lived and where all the volleyball was. Because number one, I want to be close to the bus station and the airport to get out of Albany whenever I could, right? Also, like, I smoke weed every now and then. I drink a beer and I want to watch a football game. That's not what people do up there. So I didn't want someone coming by my house, judge me for my behavior. So I was kind of arm's length with certain things. And I told Sarah, if she had come back with as much as a mark on her elbow, I'd have been up there with the same reaction because that's not what we're fucking doing here. So ultimately, I think all these behaviors that were going on, were going to hit someone like me eventually right? Or they were going to hit someone who just wasn't, who was going to be like, what the fuck? Right? And I felt like my reaction and my response to it was more uh, in line with what I think, quote unquote, less indoctrinated people would have. What the fuck is going on here? You fucking kidding me? You're branding my wife? No, this ends. And it stops. It stops with me. Like, and it was going to hit that eventually. It was going to hit it somewhere because ultimately these psychopaths, these people lose touch with what's going on in the real world. David Koresh, Jim Jones, Jim Jones had to leave and go to some place in Brazil to do it because people were having a problem with what he was doing. They lose touch and they get more absurd and insidious. This itch gets too much for them to scratch. So ultimately it was going to lead in more deaths. People say people were eventually going to die. People had already died around him. Carnage followed this guy if you look at his wake. And so, you know, because for whatever reason, and it's not so much to go, hey, you know, I'm not, I'm stronger. I was just different. And like I said, it's case by case. And I just think I was indoctrinated to a certain point. Much like a soldier goes over believing he's doing something good for the good old US of A and finds himself in a foreign country taking women and children out of a, a hooch or something like that. And has an awareness. What am I doing? This isn't fighting for freedom or something like that. And that's the moral injury. It's like, wait a minute, I've been 
a part of something I thought was good. This is bullshit. This stuff, these ideas, and a lot of the ideas I had taken with a grain of salt. I wasn't invested in emotionally. And Sarah can attest, like, I didn't do a lot of this stuff. I didn't do the proctor calls. I didn't go to a lot of the functions. They the call them defiant, events. by the way. And I was just like, fuck this. This doesn't serve me. These are bullshit jerk off meetings. I don't do it. And they tried to get me to do it. And I go, I, I would just kind of give them the proverbial finger because I was like, look, that's a waste of my time. I've got other shit I want to do. And so I kind of felt like I was left alone in that regard um, because I wasn't, I just wasn't going to toe that line. I was more, I don't know, maybe independent in that way, whatever the word I was. I was more obedient. Nippy, Nippy was more his own person, which and is good. And that ended up serving us. Yeah, it served his, his lack of indoctrination. Yeah. Whereas I told other people that I got branded who were more indoctrinated and more obedient and they would be like, they'd say things like, well, what's bad about it? What are you making it mean? Yeah, you so know, what, they, they couldn't wrap their head around. Yeah, so to your, well, I mean, to the point, like, I'll, get, I, I, I'll give an example. You know, there's a person that I was working with. There was three of us that were leading up the men's organization. Myself, Mark Vicente, Jim Del Negro. And Jim Del Negro, who is still loyal to Keith. And I went up and told him, hey, you know, women are being branded. And his reaction was very telling. And I, and I went in to tell him to see his reaction. And his reaction wasn't one of what the fuck's going on. It was what's the actual bad thing. And when I heard that, I just, I knew I was talking to someone that wasn't, you know, it was someone either he knew about it, which didn't bode well with me, or he didn't care, which didn't bode well with me. And I just felt like there was no, if he, if he didn't have the reaction I was having to me, I was, I wasn't going to try and convince him to be outraged at women being branded with Keith Raniere's initials on their crotches. It wasn't, so I knew I had to throw a hard punch to get out and I knew what they were going to do. You know, they're going to slander me to the community and all that stuff. But, you know, I just didn't give a shit at that point. I mean, I had nothing. So, you know, be wary of someone who's got nothing to lose. But what, your question was specifically like, does everyone have the same wake up? And no, I, I don't I, think. <laughs> yeah. Can I add, add to that? Yeah. In our cult education recovery process, I've learned that people wake up when they have their own experience with the inconsistency. So I had my experience of like, he's the most noble humanitarian in the world. Then he's getting women's, uh, he's getting photos of women's vaginas through other women pimping for him and asking those women to have sex using the photos against them to get them to have sex with them and then branding him with his initials. Like that was such a like clear, not, uh, consistent view of a person yeah, right and certain people reject that right away yeah. until they saw it yeah and, and, and many people because they weren't necessarily branded they, they just thought that we were the women who were leaving were lying about it um and then many people stayed on for year for a long time afterwards like at least a year and then they would have their own experience of keith saying to their face i didn't know anything about this the women did it on their own you know i'm an i'm honored that they put their initials on their body but i didn't ask for it and then uh, in the government provided documentation from his cell phone of him instructing the women to put his initials on their body like a monogram monogram thank you seriously that's <laughs> put, what you're looking for yeah put his, put the, like you like you would have put <laughs> your initials it, yeah. on a napkin you know or a towels matching mammogram monogram <laughs> monogram <laughs> okay, hang in there i need another coffee anyway the point being is that the text messages were there he was asking another woman to find a woman for him to be his sex toy. It, what, what do you call her? A fuck toy. 
Like that's the quote. Fuck toy. Yeah, find that's me, find me a fuck toy. And then the and then, so then people were like, okay, that's not consistent. So then they had their wake up, and then a whole bunch of other people laughed when they saw that. But there's still a group of people who saw that and go, nope, FBI made it up. FBI planted that. No, well, the, I think their narrative is it's unconventional. And they're, there's there's they're some people it was consensual. There's some people say it's unconventional, but it was always consensual. And there's other people who are saying the FBI planted the evidence to take down Keith because he's so noble and he's so good that the world isn't ready for his nobility. So there's like 10 people left. So they will stay until they have their own moment of, oh, shit, I've been lied to. And at this point, they may never have it because if they have it now, they've been lied to and they ignored all this information. They ignored the trial. They ignored hundreds of people who left saying I was abused. And they're saying, no, they're all liars. Nope, nope, nope. They're all liars. Lies, 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 lies. Which is like a number one um, red flag for a cult when people leave and they're dismissed as being crazy or jilted ex-lovers. And those uh, victims' statements aren't taken seriously. That's a, that's a huge red flag. Anyway, those people may never wake up and it might be better for them that way because it's going to be a hard, hard road. And, Did I answer your question? <laughs> oh, totally. And our listeners may not categorize their religious affiliation similar to your experience, but what are some red flags that you guys have experienced within just structured leadership? I think this does transcend whether you're a Catholic or an Nexium follower. Uh, you know, what are some of those flags where you can say, okay, this is headed down a bad path and maybe I don't need to jump, but I at least need to be aware. That's a great question. And I actually do think those red flags transcend any organization, whether you're Catholic, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, yogi practitioner, um, selling vitamins. It doesn't matter if you're in an organization where the leader isn't accountable to anybody and there's no checks and balances and you can't question that leader without feeling like you're in trouble or you're going to be shunned or you're going to be labeled a bad person in any way. That's like probably the number one. Wouldn't you say, Nippy? Yeah. I mean, look out for that and right away. And then there's there's other experts that we've had on our podcast that explain it way better than we have and have books on it. But Stephen Hassan has a book and it's pretty simple and straightforward. Anything that is influencing your behavior, uh, the information that you get, your thoughts and your emotions. It's called the bite model. Coercion, those sorts of things. And those are best on, those are loosely based on previous um, people that Stephen Hassan uh, has studied. But those are normally the things they get in because if you start controlling those things, you start controlling people's minds. And ultimately, that's their thoughts and their behaviors and their actions. And um, those are really, really um, good indicators. And then um, there's one, Yanya Lalich has the uh, 15 traits of a narcissist psychopath. Um, and those are all on our show notes and our podcast. But they're really like, and you know, this, does, and this goes into relationships too. You know, you can, you can be dating someone that's like that and that gaslights you and, and does all that stuff. Um, and just to, can I just tangent there? Yeah. If, if you're in an organization and you have a concern and you bring it up to a leadership and the leadership puts it back on you as your, your issue or that you're questioning because maybe in, in, with your listenership, you're not connected enough to God or, you know, it's your, your, your faith is being tested. 
like, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe, <laughs> but what I'm talking about right now is why is X, Y, Z happening? So when, if you're bringing forth a, a, a concern and it gets flipped back on you and then you feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have asked that, or maybe this is my problem, or maybe I'm not devoted enough to God. I need to trust more or something like that. That's, that's, that's called gaslighting. And that's a, that's a, that's a number one red flag right there. And I, I'd say also in any of these organizations, if people leave, which they do, and they should be allowed to. <laughs> People should be allowed to change their mind and come and go freely in any organization, I believe. Mm-hmm. And if they do leave, if the organization handles that with shunning um, or saying, you know, disparaging things about the person or, well, you know, I guess they were never committed and their, their relationship to whatever the higher power is, is, isn't real or they're a bad person or they went, especially the number one thing is went crazy. If they're crazy or they're they're um in Keith's sense, everyone Whatever everyone was a jilted lover. Everyone yeah. was in love with him and couldn't have him. That's why they decided to take him That's down. A, that was actually one of the cases that the defense brought up. Which <laughs> that uh Keith had a hard time letting women go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why he dragged them through court for years and years and poisoned their dogs allegedly. He's just a guy who had a hard time who was hurt letting women go. Yeah. Um, it's, it's called crazy. dependency issues. We have a whole program about it. Yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, your, your focus is on liberating people, on having these conversations, on educating as many people as you can. Has this experience soured any religious affiliation for you guys moving forward? Mm, um, a little bit. I mean, I'm, I don't want to join a group anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, I'm not going to be joining any groups and going, like, I just... I didn't like doing it in the first place. You know, so you're probably not going to do it now. It's, it's, time, it's time consuming. Like, sure. no, Sarah, Sarah can attest. I was leaving. I was leaving early. I tried to skip out of a training because I was just like, dude, this is, this is mind numbing sometimes. So um, I have a hard time with that stuff anyway. Look, here's, here, I mean, how do you put it? It's, if you can't leave, if you can't graduate from a program and you make the tools your life and not, use the tools for your life, it's probably not good for you. It's a good chance. Like, Unless know. there's like, I'm sure there's communities of people who are, you know, Christian, Catholic, Jewish, who they're not culty and there's a community and their people can be devoted and, and, and study and feel like they're part of something and have a connection to God. I'm sure those exist. Yeah. And it's I just never don't know the where. content <laughs> points that you're learning in religion that people quarrel with. It's the process of how you get people to, to bow down, right? So we've yet in human history to come up with a hierarchy that's not vulnerable to abuses of power, right? In any, in any domain, really, government, religion, or whatever. And so there's a good chance that if someone has power, they're going to abuse it consciously or unconsciously. And if you're not aware of your own power, there's a good chance someone's going to be using your power if you don't take inventory of it. So Ultimately, I think it comes down to, you know, understanding your own power, understanding other people's and understanding your boundaries and understanding how abuses of power work when they're happening in real time. And I think there seems to be a collective, you know, lexicon going on. I think politics is working it out because they both seem absurd. Uh, They both get extreme um, when they feel like they're going to lose power. So collectively, you know, there's this kind of consciousness going on about it and, and people need to educate themselves. Uh, what it looks like and sounds like. And hopefully we're a part of that conversation. We're adding dialogue to that. So I think that's really what it boils down to, at least for me. 
I agree. Yeah. And, but in answer to your question, like I, I, in doing the podcast and, and putting it out there to our listenership, like what do you, what are you a part of or what, are you, what have you heard of that's a little bit culty? We're not saying everything's a cult, but there's dynamics at play that are culty according to the criteria. So maybe it's not a full cult and they're not, and they're not you know, forcing people to drink cyanide Kool-Aid or branding the members with the leader's initials. But people can't, for example, feel like they could leave or they feel like they can't question or they feel bad if they have a different thought. Like that's, that's problematic for me. So in, in that outreach, so much has come back in every single religion. Like I was raised culturally Jewish. My dad's atheist, used to be Anglican. So I celebrate Christmas. Um, you know, I, I did every kind of yoga that I've now learned has massive history of, of abuse in Bikram, Ashtanga, Iyengar, Kundalini, Baptiste, every single thread of yoga has somebody who's being called out for being a predator. So I'm just like, okay, what do I, what do, I do now? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I like the Jewish community I'm part of. I don't really go to synagogue. Um, I don't, I mean, COVID has really changed things because it's not like I can go into any group setting anyway. But, um, you know, people invite me to stuff and I generally feel very skeptical to answer your question. But I'm also, I do love community, so it's hard. (laughs) Joey, do you know the difference between a cult and a religion? The leader of the religion is dead, meaning the founder is dead, so it becomes a religion. Right. Right. So all, all the religions, you know, religions were considered a cult originally. Some dude went in the woods, saw some shit, came back, wrote a book. And then hundreds of years later, people are still following it and listening to it. So the, a cult is the, the, the guru is still alive or something like that. Maybe I butchered the joke, but that's the gist of it. So, Sarah, as we close, as we bring our time to an end, what would you say to people within organized religious spaces, you know, whatever that happens to be, and they know people who are affiliated or at least connected to some cult sphere, what would be the best way to engage with those people? Sure. I mean, I think if somebody wants to engage and or help somebody, the first thing would be to... um, there's a couple books I'd recommend. Um, one of them is called Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. Um, and by the way, on my, on my website, hold on one second, if he's going to make a noise. And goodbye. Um, it's on my website. There's a resource section. I have a bunch of books I recommend. But don't confront the person until you have a better idea of how to do it. And one of those things that is to... Um, not judge, uh, well, of course you're judging because you think they're into something bad, but you don't want to come across that way. You want to come across as more curious and asking certain questions. One question that Stephen taught me is, um, you know, is this, what, what, what did you sign up for? Asking questions about what, what the person thought they were getting involved with often brings them back to the beginning of what got them in and recognizing that perhaps what they're in is not what they had signed up for. I mean, I certainly had that recognition. Um, so, you know, asking questions about about what they're involved with, helping, basically your, the goal is to, to provide them to have the awareness that what they're doing isn't consistent or not necessarily good for them or perhaps unethical, depending on what the thing is. But educate yourself first and um, approach it with compassion that this person has, you know, perhaps a, many years of indoctrination and it might be hard to penetrate and it can be very frustrating. So, um, yeah, educate yourself, be compassionate, be kind, 
be patient. It might take a while. That's great. Well, thank you both for being on the show. Can you tell our listeners about your podcast and how they can connect with you online? Absolutely. So our podcast is A Little Bit Culty. They can find it on a littlebitculty.com, the website, but probably best is to to find us on Instagram. You can follow us there and we have lots of fun, extra bonus content, including we just posted yesterday a video of Nippy doing an impression of our former leader, the Vanguard, which is hilarious. And um, season two of The Vow will be coming out in the fall and also season two of our podcast this summer, hopefully, if all things go as planned. Um, I'm at Sarah Edmondson on Instagram. Nippy is at Anthony Ames. Um, We're also both on Twitter. And, oh, and I wrote a book, right, which can be found on Amazon or wherever books are sold. If you want to hear me reading it, I I narrate the Audible, which is cool. And uh, it's a pretty crazy story. So if if you want the whole story, that's where it is. The podcast is more about moving forward, healing, education, stuff like that. Awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having us. And please keep in touch. We'll figure out how to support each other. That wraps up today's episode of Dismantle Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at DismantlePod. You can shoot us an email at DismantlePod at gmail.com or support the work of the show by visiting Patreon.com slash DismantlePod. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. (laughs) 